And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by some of your favorite people from Philadelphia. I'm Sam, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dave and Connor. Hello. 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 Ah. <laughs> ah. Ah. How you doing? See anything cool recently? I'm doing all right. It's been very hot lately. So the movies, oh. I, I've been to the theater once uh, recently, and it was to see Thor, Love and Thunder on opening weekend, or I guess the Monday. Of opening weekend, and I thought it was good. I'm a little confused about how divisive um, it's been with critics and fans. So I'm interested to see people who I know and, and trust and you know, who talk to movies about to eventually to go see it to kind of hear their opinions because I thought it was it was a lot of fun, a little bit like a throwback Marvel movie. I love Taika Waititi and his comedic timing, his style. I think Chris Hemsworth has really slotted in well in this kind of new iteration of Thor that got kind of rebooted in Ragnarok. It's good to see Natalie Portman, Jane Foster have like some stuff to actually do in a movie. I mean, Tessa Thompson's great. Uh, Christian Bale is like an interesting villain. I think probably my biggest criticism is that I really love the themes that it tries, that it kind of like gets into, but only goes like a couple inches below the surface on some of them when I feel like going really deep on maybe a few lesser really interesting themes and concepts might have made the movie a little more rewarding but overall definitely one of my favorite marvel movies in a while connor i promise i'm gonna go see it i'll see it on friday uh one thing i did check out that also i didn't check out in theaters was um as newly released to uh netflix a film called rrr uh that being an indian language uh epic action drama film directed by ss rajamoli found it to be Truly insane. Um, that movie is bonkers. I'm not familiar with a lot of uh, Indian cinema, so I can't really speak to how it compares to other films uh, too much outside of like some Bollywood films I've seen and stuff. But uh, this was like a wholly unique experience. Uh, some really incredible action sequences, some really excellent pacing as far as revealing character motivation and uh, and what these characters are focused on, what their goals are. And and really pacing them out in really interesting, creative, and thoughtful ways in, for a movie that is uh, in excess of three hours. Uh, it earns every minute of the runtime. It includes some truly incredible fight sequences, uh, some CGI compositing that I think is a little bit much uh, at times, but on the whole, um, generally carries the momentum of the film through really well. Some pretty fantastic acting and a really cool story. So uh, if you have the opportunity and... Uh, a little over three hours to spare would definitely say check that one out because uh the more i think about it the more it's quickly moving up the list of uh i think the best films of this year so far i've seen so many people talk about this online so i think this is one i definitely will try to check out before the year's out yeah there's if, if for nothing else there's a fight scene that's about like seven minutes into the movie which is one of the like most radical things i've seen in a film in a long time pretty pretty awesome stuff 
what a perfect transition. You're talking about one of the best movies you've seen all year to perhaps something no one has ever said about this movie. Uh, which, so our theme this time around is basically just a grab bag, movies that we wanted to really talk about. And to the surprise of literally no one, I have picked Maximum Overdrive. I have been talking about this movie literally almost nonstop both on the podcast and unfortunately for everyone I work with at work. I think uh, poor Joel has heard me wax poetic about this film uh, almost every day in the past two weeks. So Joel, you're a real one. Uh, Everyone else, I'm sorry. But hopefully with us doing this episode, I might be able to put a pin in this movie for a little bit. Regardless, I'm excited to talk about it. So Maximum Overdrive is Stephen King's one and only uh, directorial credit. And uh, we'll probably get into exactly why that is. But Dave, Connor, was this either of your... I know, Dave, I know this isn't your first watch. Connor, was it yours? It was. So, Connor, let me ask you, as someone who's just coming to this movie in 2022, what did you think about Maximum Overdrive? I loved a good amount of it. And then there were other parts that were kind of like, slow a little bit. When the movie's pedal to the metal, pun intended. Um, I think that there's a lot of really creative ideas happening. Uh, I love how gruesome it can be. Um, And I think I, when it had my attention, it fully had my attention. It lost it at some significant chunks throughout. But overall, I could see this being something that like I put on at a party with our friends. If we're just like kind of half in, half out, watch the beginning, and then we go do something else and kind of filter back in. And I just enjoyed just how weird kind of a lot of it is. Yeah, so overall, I, I, I definitely did enjoy watching Maximum Overdrive. I'm so glad to hear that. Dave, this is not your first time. Or was it? It's not. I've seen it in, I think, high school, probably, like a long time ago. Um, and hadn't really revisited it since. Had pretty fond memories of it. So this was interesting to go back to. Uh, it's a sandwich movie for me. This is a movie that uh, has a really, a really captivating, really awesome, and a really creative uh, first, third uh, middle portion that I really, uh, that really tested my patience. And then, uh, an end portion that I think was, uh, was a pretty awesome, uh, climax after, uh, things had played out for a while. I, I agree with Connor. I think my attention, uh, waned at times, although when, uh, yeah, when it is pedal to the metal, if we're going to use another pun, then it, it definitely, uh, it's definitely pretty awesome for a little while. Um, especially at the onset and especially at the end. Um, I think King's direction is interesting, uh, albeit imperfect. Uh, I think that it, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it's a tough one. It's very creative when it, when it tries to go out of its way to be, but then, uh, there's also, uh, lapses in that in the middle, I'd say. We'll parse out, uh, what I enjoyed and what, uh, bored me a little bit as we continue. Yeah, I agree with what you both said. 100%. Uh, I have only fond memories of this movie from when I was a kid and revisiting it several times now as an adult. I've always been like, damn, almost, man. Like, there could have been something here, but kind of fumbled it in the end zone a few times, I think. Uh, Anyway, so what the fuck is Maximum Overdrive? I think that for the amount of times I referenced this movie, 
more people don't know what it is. So it is like my like one person crusade to make as many people know this film as possible. So Maximum Overdrive came out in 1986. The screenplay and direction was by Stephen King. It's based on King's uh, Trucks. It's a short story in uh, Night Shift. This stars Emilio Estevez, Laura Harrington, Pat Hingle, Yardley Smith, and more. The soundtrack was by ACDC, their album Who Made Who, which uh, makes... A lot of sense, or when you think about what the the movie does, what it's about, the budget, which I imagine all basically went to ACDC and or just like a a couple select scenes that were really kind of like gratuitous and almost unnecessary. Um, it was nine million dollars. And at the box office, it made $7.4 million. So that is a certified flop if I've ever seen one. Synopsis, let me tell you a little bit about this. So after, and this, I stole this from Rotten Tomatoes. Bless whoever wrote this. Um, also, actually, you know what? Don't bless because at once I was like reading through it. I'm like, meh kind of bad uh but it fits so after a comet causes a radiation storm on earth machines come to life and turn against their makers hold up in a north carolina truck stop a group of survivors must fend for themselves against massive homicidal trucks a diner cook bill robinson played by emilio estevez emerges as the unlikely leader of the pack attempting to find an escape plan for himself and the survivors who include his boss bubba hendershot and a newlywed couple and more and many more, seemingly more people as the time goes on, and then less people, and then more people again. Um, so that's basic overview of Maximum Overdrive. Now, a couple of things that I wanted to talk about is just why this movie is so bad. You know, Stephen King is a phenomenal author. So how did he just fumble this ball so terribly? But even if it is a flop, there are still some really excellent things to discuss, to talk about. So I'd love to get into that. Also, um, maybe why we think it flopped other than some of the, the things I'll propose. And um, just, you know, why this movie matters to me. So those that's, that's really what I'm expecting for us to chat about. But of course, as all conversations do with Better Earth That, they can kind of just take on their own their own sentient beings and minds and make their own decisions. So why did this movie flop? Stephen King in recent years called Maximum Overdrive a moron movie and said it was a big learning experience for him, huge learning curve. Uh, but then he also said things like he was coked out of his mind all throughout production and he didn't really know what he was doing the whole time. What do you think about that as reason for a movie flopping? Do you think that's like a cop-out, as some have said? Do you think maybe that's the truth? I mean, I don't know. It's it's his first film. It's his first time directing a film. It's a time when, uh, according to his reporter, she was uh, wrapped up in a lot of substance abuse. It's a movie that, as uh, Sam, I know you've noted here uh, elsewhere in the notes, uh, was one that he was kind of butting heads with some other uh producers and things like that throughout the filming process, differences of opinion and vision. Uh, I, I hate to say this because you've, 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 uh, you've given this film such praise so far, but uh, I, I just don't think it's, it's all that good is kind of the reason that it plopped. I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, 
again, this middle portion that we'll, we'll get to, I, it, it's kind of a, for me, it was a real snooze. So it, it really lost me at one point midway through the movie. So it, I think that middle portion, unfortunately, because it is so, it's like 45 minutes of the movie, really kind of outweighs a lot of the stuff that I appreciate about it. And I think that might have been probably, I'm assuming that for some people that was an audience sentiment. It would have been mine at the time and is now, I guess. But uh, but I, I, I can't speak to why it flopped. I, I really don't know. I guess a combination of those features or or maybe something else entirely. Yeah, I think character is where this movie, you know, the characters where this movie lacks the most. If It's interesting that he was the screenwriter, the director, you know, makes me... I don't know how far this connection can go, but of uh, J.K. Rowling and her involvement with the Fantastic Beast series, uh, just because somebody can write novels, successful novels, um, doesn't mean that that translates to also writing screenplays or writing poetry or other, you know, artistic mediums. Or directing. So, yeah. or, or also adding directing on top of that as well. And so, and Sam, I think we're talking about today, this is based off of a short story. So it's not even like he had his own thousand page novel to kind of lean back on. Um, so he was just working from his own short story. So I can kind of see, I don't know, maybe it was a case of there just weren't enough people, um, you know, they checks and balances or somebody, maybe he just had total kind of control over it. And man, I wish that this film was just more of the, I love the, the moments of the kid, like the baseball team, the one kid who like survives. And it's kind of like, has this like apocalypse feel like he's going through this like abandoned town people are dying like are dead on their stoops dogs are dead i like that vibe a lot like i think that kind of serious like how does a child navigate this world with then like the kind of sillier things at the rest stop and i think we're kind of i I felt a little stuck at the rest stop which i know is like the point because the they circle it and so i feel like that there's a few threads of really interesting ideas and some of those are followed through somewhat but then they're hampered by their kind of the, the dialogue character baggage. I think it's a little bit part of it, definitely, Connor. I think these characters are written to be very like tropey. Like they're they're kind of like caricatures of familiar archetypes of uh of sort of like storytelling cliches or 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 just really familiar characterization, which is fine. I think, you know. In, in a movie that is as campy as this one, I, I welcome characters that are like basically walking tropes. The problem is we spend the middle of this movie learning a lot about them and they're not interesting characters. Uh, especially if we're, we're to consider them to be deeper characters than tropes because then we have to backpedal to justify how their characterization after the fact sows into the tropiness that's been established. So like, it, it's kind of asking you to do both things, to not take it seriously and take it seriously at the same time, just in the middle of the movie, which is a strange choice. I think Stephen King had like a couple of great ideas as concerns like the premise and was like, I really want to jump into making this like brutal thing. And then got to the middle and was like, Oh shit, I have to write some characters. And that's sort of what happened. Yeah. And kind of like, what's the tone that we're going to follow? Do we take it the premise seriously, but play it like embrace the kind of goofy or do we embrace the goofy elements and keep it campy? Or do we kind of follow the the seriousness of what's happening? Maybe juxtaposing it with how ridiculous it is that the like Turkey like the, the handsaw comes to life or the toy police car chokes the dog. Like there's definitely, like, I feel like. With God, a diff- that, one, that one's so good. I know. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just wonder if like with a different writer, there could have been a really interesting balance of like these really silly images with the characters taking the situation super seriously. Like it just feels like uh, maybe another couple passes at a screenplay. 
would have like fulfilled or like followed a kind of sort of vision. So, cause I, as I said, I liked where a lot of the threads led, but then they all kind of lead back to the characters stuck at the garage, um, which kind of weighs the movie down quite a bit. That's also uh, one real quick thing too, just about the middle of the movie. I, I kind of want to get my, my baggage out of the way here because there are a lot of things that I do like about this movie. And I'm sure we're going to want to talk about them when we get a little more excited about about getting into that stuff. But one of the, the other things that I think this movie really suffers from is a failure of imagination. At the beginning, we're trying all sorts of shit. We have, you know, as, as Connor, you've mentioned that like ham slicer, there's a remote control car that's trying choked a dog. There's a, a lady that's hanging out of a window strangled by like uh, some cord or something. So all these, all these interesting appliances and machines that are, are turning on people. Uh, given the promise of the premise of the movie that machines have turned on people. Then for 45 minutes, we're watching like six trucks circle a diner and all of the sense of menace is kind of sucked out of the room because you've reduced it to just this one thing. So that for me uh, drags it down a lot too. Dave, Connor, everything that you both have said, I agree with 100%. I, I think, and I have done this a lot in my life, which is I have the bones of something good and then I go, I'll figure it out when I get there. And then I never figure it out. I'm there and it just doesn't happen. And so I think when you have a short story that's like, around 10 pages. This is a brilliant idea. It's terrifying. You leave people wanting more, but it's the execution of giving people more when you haven't thought it out too, too much where things really go wrong. I mean, for me, some of the things that are so fucking frustrating is, okay, so the premise is electronics with engines are sentient and homicidal. And yet we have immediate contradictions with people's cars being okay. There's two people who are driving cars as the comet has gone over. The the people who are driving them have complete control of these cars. They use the cars to actually get them out of the way of uh, like homicidal trucks. Mm -hmm. So like make it make sense. And it doesn't. And like I... Agree, Dave, like the idea of the um, the hairdryer, hilarious, scary. Because like, think about how many things that we rely on every single day that could potentially kill us. I mean, there's so many and you don't even think about it. So like- Yeah, they're, in a, a, they're in a diner. Like there yeah. should be more threats than just these trucks. <laughs> like it is a terrifying concept. It really does work, but just- Again, dropped that ball somewhere. Um, some other really big issues that I have, because I, I want to get those out of the way, is when there comes a truce between the people at the diner and then the trucks. Oh and that's like the best sentence you've ever said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a, yeah, God. It's I don't I don't remember it word for word, but essentially Emilio Estevez goes up to one of the the main trucks and is like tell all your friends i have the the best the cleanest gas around kind of like it's like fucking coke you're like dude shut up this is gasoline you're talking to a truck fuck you and then trucks just come to this one diner slash truck stop from who the fuck knows where to to suck them dry of gasoline and then it eventually does happen it's what that's so stupid. 
And it's also like 15 minutes of like people pumping gas and getting like totally exhausted while like ACDC's Hell's Bells or whatever is blaring in the back. Like it doesn't really have any like the, the content of the song has no like connection to what we're seeing or the narrative or the place we're at in this story. It's just kind of like exhausted people pumping gas to. And it's like, oh, God, what what's even happening here? It's also how you can tell this movie wasn't uh, doesn't take place in uh, New Jersey, aside from all the stars and bars that are everywhere, uh, is that, you know, people at Wawa would be like, this is just a normal day for me. Why is Emilio Estevez getting so so worn out fueling up these trucks? For those that don't know, New Jersey, uh, in New Jersey, you can't pump your own gas. There's a service service workers. I learned how to pump my own gas at the age of 16 when I moved to Pennsylvania. I mean, I, I got it on my first try, but it was something that I just, I grew up in New Jersey. So it's just something I never learned. I never knew how to do. Fun fact. Um, that really shook me, Connor. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, the idea of someone not knowing how to pump their own gas is just, it, you know what? It actually reminds me, Jesus God, of uh, go back to the early 2000s with me, the television show the newlyweds with jessica simpson and nick lachey uh when she doesn't know how to pump her own gas okay the uh dead looks on your faces say that that is a lost reference (laughs) someone please that's listening tell me if you remember that but i think about it a lot butter with that podcast at (laughs) gmail.com and i want to reiterate i picked it up in about one minute Yeah, it's so I, I got it right away. I just had to like, oh, the car. Oh, I put the card. Oh, I get to choose what. Le- oh, okay. Oh, this is how you unscrew the gas cap. I've never touched the gas cap for the first like sixteen years of my life. Oh, that's actually kind of endearing. Thank it's you. A big Tom. day. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sweet. Shout out to the Wawa in Rogersford, Pennsylvania. Shout out. Um. So, all right, we're talking about the the weak middle part here that's like 45 minutes. Some of the the weak characters, weak plot execution. I I have to say this, Emilio Estevez as this bad boy returning from prison, he's on parole at this fucking truck stop. I cannot believe that at all. I don't know if it's the way that Emilio plays it or it's just like, that's Emilio Estevez. I don't know what it is, but I just found him so hard to believe that he's like some kind of badass. I don't know if that came across to you guys or if you feel differently, but what do you think about him as the main character? Uh, Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard role to fill because like, again, it is somewhere between a trope and like a sincere character which is a very difficult balance. Like you need an actor that can handle real nuance and uh, maybe Emilio Estevez isn't your your go-to for something like that. Uh, at least not in this movie. Although I don't think Bruce Springsteen would have been a better choice either. Apparently, Sam, as you've noted, um, that was uh, King's original choice for the character. Might've been interesting, but um, I don't know that he would have sold it with that much more um, that much more convincing pathos or, or, or dynamics either. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting though. Like this movie's got a pretty great cast. It's got uh, Estevez, who, who can be really interesting in some things. Pat Hingle, who can be pretty good here and there. Uh, Frankie Faison, who's awesome, and um, Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson. So like, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting mix of characters. But yeah, I, I don't know that it uh, it's it sticks the landing. Maybe because of how the characters are written. I think what's hard too is. I kind of forgot that he's supposed to be our like protagonist 
because we bounce around so much. We have the kids, the newlywed. There's a whole lot of characters at the garage. And like we meet, some, you know, a lot of kind of, it's a pretty character heavy movie for something that's pretty, you know, small in scope and scale. And so I kind of forgot that he's like, he just doesn't get a lot of screen time. And this it's what, like an out, like pretty much 90 minutes exactly. So for a pretty, you know, standard feature like movie, I feel like he doesn't get a lot of screen time to like, there's not a whole lot of time there to flesh him out. And what time is used is not used the most effectively. Yeah, I suppose because we are juggling a lot of characters, it's hard to... Yeah, maybe if he had more time to like stretch a little bit in the movie and like do a little bit more uh, to... To make him like, uh, he's clearly the protagonist, but it's it's not quite like clear enough. I don't know. So it's it's one of those kind of things. And maybe that has what's to do with the performance or the character writing. I'm not sure which, but maybe both. And what's his arc? I guess too. That's like muddled. Um, I feel like a movie like this, you need very clear character dynamics and character object. Like it just feels like, yeah, whatever. It's Amelia. He's doing it. He's, uh, he's yeah, oh yeah. He's his backstory. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, we learn he went to prison, and it doesn't really way into his character at all not not that that necessarily does does or should in all cases but like if that's like his defining characteristic in the movie and so that's the sort of thing you should build an arc on as opposed to say nothing <laughs> i honestly yeah. forgot that detail about his character until you guys just brought it up like straight up i just forgot about that part <laughs> because it doesn't mean anything and you know what you what else you notice is that all right so the truck stop that we're talking about is called the dixie boy and the, the man who runs this, his name is Bumber, B- B- Bubba Hendershot. And he's just an absolute prick, like the worst capitalist you've ever seen. And he makes a racket on <laughs> paying people for eight hours while they're doing nine hours worth of work. And he's really putting people into like a, a like a bad situation because they're on parole and they need a place to work. And he's... Um, Emilio's character has like this star next to his name. And when you look at all the other time cards that people have, like more, most of the employees than not uh, have the same star. So it's like part of the racket. Like that's how he's getting away with this. Um, But you know what? Like who gives a shit about Bubba? I mean, he like barely (laughs) matters to me. And and that's the thing with most of the characters. I think that they like barely matter. Um, It really bothers me that for some reason, Emilio's character had to have this like love connection with the one of two, one of the two women that are in this, um, the character of Brett. It just, it feels like completely unnecessary and unearned. But of course, like if you're going to make like a, like a horror film in the, the 1980s or an action film, I would call this like an action film. You have to have this like romance element. Like, no, you don't. And also like, not like that. I just can't even imagine that these, like are these guys just like having sex while like everyone else is just, in the restaurant like damn i really wish we weren't surrounded by these trucks this really sucks you know i i fucking hate that yeah it really kind of does feel like it's the only reason she's a character (laughs) yeah well all right we've talked about the shit we hate let's get into maybe some things we liked about the movie or are there more things that you want to talk about that you don't like i have one more thing that i can cover really quick 
Okay. Yeah, so before we segue into the things that we do enjoy about this movie, and there's a lot to enjoy about this movie, at least uh, in, in the margins at the beginning and end for me. One thing that is patently outrageous is the way that this uh, this movie ends. Yes. Because we get, in the beginning of the movie, we get this nice, uh, this nice text scrawl. It's pretty long. And it tells us that, like, basically, yeah, there's this comet. This certain comet has this trail that is causing, like, electromagnetic uh flux and and is basically what is uh breathing sentience and life and vengeance into uh all machines and all technology except i guess like hammers and pulleys that's never really addressed anyway simple machines whatever uh but it's this comet and eventually they figure out that it's the comet and that informs uh the way that the story goes for the most part beyond a certain point and then at the end of the movie the very end of the movie we get another text and this explains that a uh, an unidentified flying object, a UFO, has been shot down by a Russian uh, "quote unquote" weather satellite, which was uh, equipped with nuclear weapons. So, like that means that okay, so obviously aliens were involved. It's like if <laughs> imagine if I told you a story. My story is like, hey, I went to buy milk today, and my story is, you know, I went to the local grocer. I bought. Uh, I was going to get two percent milk, but they only had one percent. But I compromised. I brought it up to the counter. Is it because of inflation? It's a little bit more money, but I, I was willing to do it. But damn it, I forgot my coupon at home, so I had to pay full price. And that's my story of going to buy milk. Oh, and by the way, Godzilla attacked the grocery store. It's like, no, that is the story. You don't get to sneak aliens into your movie at the very end. Well, and it ruins like a like I thought we were like some interesting moments. The like the plot of these characters speculating of like, yeah, we know there's this comic going through, like that's common knowledge, but there's dialogue about, oh, what if it's like aliens, or, like this exterior force controlling it? Like what's happening? Like I thought that was like, oh, like these characters, like I thought that those were just like some nice moments and like they, our character, like, like us, our characters don't really know exactly 100% what is happening. And it's like, oh, there's a few fucking UFOs at the end. Great. <laughs> Yeah, like so much of this movie is unearned. The things that happen, the things that people achieve and get if they do that is unearned. It's it's just so strange. And that's like the most glaring example because like it's supposed to be like in my imagination, I think it's supposed to be like a twist at the end. Uh-huh. And like Stephen King is a, is a good writer. Uh, if you ask some, he's a great writer. And like, I know he knows that if it is a twist, it's the kind of thing you need to see the irony of before the very end. And it doesn't do that at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's really funny, but, like, I don't think it's supposed to be. Yeah, right? And that's kind of, that's, like, worse than it actually being, like, a real thing. Anyway. Also, how did the weather satellite launch nukes? Well, they do <laughs> They do make a point to say that it is a quote-unquote weather satellite, alluding to that, like, hey, the Ruskies are still up to something, even though they saved the world. Yeah, it's, it's just all ridiculous. Yeah. All right, so we spent... A good amount of time chatting about why this movie <laughs> flopped and the things that we don't like. But I picked this for a reason because despite all of those really valid problems we have, I still love this movie and there are still really fun things that happen in it. So I thought we could spend some time chatting about those. Uh, something that I love. All right. So we talked a little bit about how like the characters aren't really fleshed out like at all. Uh, However, the trucks that are kind of our prime primary antagonists, I think are characters of themselves. And when I was a kid and even as an adult, I view them with all very distinct personalities. Is that just a me and my dad thing? Or was that something that you picked up too? 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely a universal thing. I mean, like, uh, we have uh, the different, like, you know, brands of, like, what they're carrying to identify them throughout the movie, in addition to, like, the makeup of the, like, actual rigs that are towing these clearly identifiable things. <clears throat> One of them is, you know, has, like, the Green Goblin face on it, which I don't know how they managed to do. I don't know if King and uh, and Lee were buddies or something. But, uh it makes it pretty clearly identifiable and iconic, kind of as the leader of the trucks. Yeah, I think there's definite definite characterization to uh, to these like mechanical threats, which is very cool. Uh, it's it's a really smart choice because if you're not going to take the time to 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 develop these characters beyond their tropes in a way that's all that coherent, then you might as well invest a lot of energy into making the threat uh, developed and menacing and. Uh, it pretty much does as far as these individual trucks and being able to like chart uh, how threatening they are, how menacing they are. Like some of them are more malicious than others almost. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. I think that's a good feature of the movie for sure. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's only natural that we, you know, I think as humans want to personify inanimate objects. Anthropomorphizing so think, them, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's a, a, a fun part of the movie that it taps into. And I think King does a good job of letting our own imaginations do the work. Like he'll he'll over explain UFOs at the end or tack on, you know, whatever. But when well, it comes or to debate these, about, or under explain entirely, yeah, either way, true. He'll throw he'll just throw shit at us, uh, maybe over explaining. But I think with the trucks, he does a good job of just letting the trucks just be fucking trucks who are just circling. This this one uh, rest stop diner, uh, running people off the road, or like. And I think it's part of the like comedic timing, which I think the campiness energy, I think is what works of like the truck slowly or so I think I love the beginning of this movie. And so with like the drawbridge going up, it's like the button slowly gets pressed, the knobs slowly get moved. Like you can tell that whatever force this is has a kind of fun energy about it or like, (laughs) like, Like, I feel like a lot of cackling I could, I could sense. And I think that's just me as a viewer and that's King and his crew letting me as the viewer make that inference. Oh my God. And when the, um, toward the end of the movie, when like the fast food person, like attention, humor, humans here, humans, here, like whatever it says. So good. <laughs> There's like just a lot. That's when the campy energy I think works really well in its favor. And at the beginning, I love when the first. So you get the it's kind of like an overlong credit intro for like what at Canal Studios or something like these weird noises. That's beside the point. When it opens to the bank and it says "fuck you, fuck you," like just oh, in the, the banner ATM. of the bank. Oh yeah, yeah the banner then, actually first. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, whoa, what is happening? And then and then it's um, then the ATM. Uh, that's Stephen King, I think, right? And then the ATM mm-hmm. says, asshole, asshole. It's like, the, AT- the mach- money machine just called me an asshole. And then it cuts to like, that's like the cold open. <laughs> like, I thought that was a really cheeky way to start. Like, I know that is a tone setter of like the energy that's going into this movie. It diverges from that initial tone, but uh, I think that's a really great initial tone to kind of kick the movie off with. Yeah, you can make the argument that this is a dark comedy, without a doubt. That shit is funny. I mean, when the drawbridge goes up and you have 
the fucking truck cart of watermelon that is just causing perhaps the most mayhem of the whole thing. Just watermelons abound, crashing into windows. People are falling out of their cars onto the watermelon. You almost think they're like popped brains, but really it's just watermelon. It's just, it's ridiculous. And I love that. I mean, the fucking, some of the kills are that way too. Like we were talking about the, the dog with the toy car the toy police car that's ridiculous the fucking lawnmower i talked at length about this lawnmower for years to anyone who would listen that's so crazy that this bloodthirsty lawnmower would be chasing a kid down the street but it's so fucking funny i can't ever forget it i just yeah that's an, that's another one that may, was like a great idea but perhaps a missed opportunity because like it's it's such a visceral and violent idea, but ultimately it doesn't kill anybody. It just chases a kid while covered in blood. So we can assume it did, but we don't get that action of seeing it do it. Um, there's also uh, a bit of trivia that, uh, oh boy, let me find this guy's name real quick. He was uh, he was the director of photography for this movie, the cinematographer, um, Armando uh, Nanucci, or Nanuzzi, who shot the film for King and uh, wound up losing an eye because of the insistence of leaving the blade within the lawnmower, which at no point is like actually upright or anything. We never see a spinning blade in this lawnmower. So it's totally unnecessary to shoot it that way. And it ultimately resulted in, you know, a cinematographer losing his shooting eye, which is pretty terrible. But, um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree, Connor, as far as like the, the tone at the beginning is when it's at its most charming, when these machines are coming into their own, gaining sentience and becoming vengeful, but also being like really crass and like rude and mean. It's like, just like they're like the machines are swearing a bunch and the like degree to which they're, they're vengeful. Like the, um, the little ham slicer once it's battered apart with a hammer is still like trying to cut stuff, which is like, that that's the stuff that I really appreciate. Just how like, driven these machines are once inhabited or, or, or uh, you know, uh, embodied by this external force. It's it's very fun stuff. And it's kind of what I wish the movie did throughout. Even even though, like, the when we get to, like, the truck section, the trucks are individually, like, interesting and, like, defined. But it's, it's at its most playful when it's incorporating other things, I think, at the beginning and the end. And I think that's what makes this so interesting is, like, from a horror movie angle, is making the mundane terrifying like all like if you drive from like margate or from like you know into ocean city you're going to go over a bridge that can open and all the time i think about what happens if i'm in the middle of that and so this movie i think does like what happens if the lawnmower goes berserk what happens if the drawbridge opens up when you're on it like these ordinary things that you don't think should be terrifying because they're like simple machines in this new context um I think for me really instigated my imagination of like, Oh my God, if like a drawbridge comes to life. If a hairdryer comes to life, like what other electric, I mean, this movie was made in 2022. This wouldn't just be, Oh my God, the diner we're stuck here. It's like satellites nuke. Like, I mean, there were nukes, but it just feels our world is so much more heavily relying on technology than in the eighties. Now, um, oh my God, imagine people's cell phones blowing up in their pockets. Like that's where I think this movie lets your imagination kind of run wild. Uh, until King just does some dumb bullshit here or there. But that, I think that's when I really enjoy this movie. Like, oh my God, all these ordinary objects um, could kill me very easily. That's why I think this movie does work because it is 
possible and it becomes more possible as the years go on. And when I was doing a little bit of research, Joe Hill, Stephen King's son actually said, I think a couple years ago that he was like, I could revisit the story and try again. And I think that I would fucking love that. Like we've had, we have the camp, we have it, try to do it for real. And I would give them all the money to, to, to actually see it. Um, Connor, Dave, you both brought up so many of my favorite scenes that I have here. Um, but something else that I, I, I just want to point out is, yeah. So we have like, surface level characters um human wise but for the the trucks you know they all do seem to have like their own individual personalities my personal favorite is the garbage truck that we get to to me kind of in the very beginning and he ends up getting blown up but he's just bloodthirsty and i fucking love it and i also love that like snark is universal dave you kind of said that connor you too when you were talking about like uh it says fuck you immediately and then like you're an asshole over and over again but um you know i just i even love what some of the 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 human characters are saying I have in my notes here. I love an appropriately timed fuck face. That'll make me laugh every single time. And quite frankly, I think it's an insult that like, I wish I heard and said more often. So like you can, uh, folks, this is a promise. I'm going to be saying fuck face more in my life. Um, puss bag was also, or puss bag was also used as an insult. I, transcended when I heard that again as an adult funniest thing ever so you know what this is something that I really love and that make this movie endearing also uh, Pat Hangel cutting in at one point with I don't give a ladybug <laughs> what <laughs> is that a colloquial term I've never heard that before in a movie it's this full of swearing why not just swear <laughs> I know don't give a ladybug. Oh, fuck. See, this is why, like, please watch this movie. It has so many good parts. Um, yeah, it's got its faults, but the funny, wonderful things, too. Um, I also love just how American it is and, like, unapologetically American. So we have the Dixie Boy Diner. I mean, just, like, having these huge tractor trailers feel very, very specific to America, like, really suburbia. Um so it's like a like a snapshot in time of this the the 1980s in the United States the 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 really big like emergence of commercial capitalism like we know it today um not to be nostalgic about capitalism but <laughs> it sort of feels like that with this movie um well and I think I understand like it's and I didn't know the, the Bruce Springsteen note that he there was a chance, you know, he was, in, you know, that King was interested in him. Uh, it sounds like for this role, because he does tap. I feel like Springsteen, at least his work thematically could be interesting of like, you know, the decay of like industry in America. Um, I don't know. It's like hearing that Springs, like Springsteen's name with, you know, this property is, is interesting. And I think could tie interestingly into his work as, you know, as a musician. I would also rather hear Bruce Springsteen songs than for for like a hundred and two minutes. Yeah, honestly, AC, ACDC was such a confusing choice. Like, I feel like on paper, and like if you look at the movie poster, um, but it's not a movie about going super fast and like heavy metal and like we're going you know as fast as we possibly. It's not an adrenaline filled movie. It's like campy horror action movie. ACDC is Stephen King's favorite band. 
Ah, there you go. That's how it happened. Bastard. Can we also just say, okay, so the, the reason why we get Emilio Estevez is because of the one of the main producers, um, Dino De Laurentiis. And he didn't get Springsteen because Springsteen was unknown to De Laurentiis. What? what? What we're talking like 1986? Yeah. Excuse me. That makes no fucking sense. Anyway, sounds like somebody owed somebody a favor. That's what I'm saying. I was gonna say the the reason supposedly that Estevez was cast was uh, quote that it was uh, he De Laurentiis said something to the effect of like, why don't we cast Martin Sheen's son? <laughs> like he didn't really even know who Emilio Estevez was. Unfucking real. So some of the other things that we talked about the the trucks characters. Some of the really over the over the top scenes. Um, I love like the overacting. The woman who plays the waitress, God, I can't fucking remember her name. She has like a breakdown and said and just like screams to the trucks, "We made you! You can't do this! We made you!" Over and over again, and then she gets shot up by this like weird machine gun contraption that finds its way to the diner. It's just a machine gun on like a rectangle with wheels. It's like a, it's a use. It has no like like shield or anything. Like how would this be used in battle? No fucking clue. Uh, it shoots up like the entire restaurant. Uh, so many of the like bystanders that were just like around die. Um, but there's always more of them somehow. Uh, I love it. It's weird. It's unnecessary. I think it's like starting to get like weirdly political in some places because then like uh, the the diner owner, you find out that he has like a military grade weapons just in his basement. He's got like so many bazookas. It's crazy. Bazookas that like don't need to be that just have like extra clips in them somehow. Also, <laughs> also seeing Pat Hingle. Like Pat Hingle at his age in this movie, fire a bazooka one handed <laughs> is awesome. Yeah, and there's some great explosions and uh, or and like um, you know blood effects, explosions. So the the effects work I think is also like pretty top notch. There's one scene where um, a truck drives over a car. And it's like, it's hard to go over. And then it reverses and goes back down. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, why? I didn't need that. It's just really rubbing their nose in it. You know, these <laughs> sarcastic killer machines. Uh, one, one part that made me laugh a lot. I don't know if this is true for everybody, but when, um, is it when she's shot and accidentally fires the bazooka and it hits the truck full of toilet paper and like <laughs> 2,000 rolls of toilet paper just come exploding out of the truck. I don't, Maybe I missed it. I didn't know that there was toilet paper in there, but just no. all these rolls, like, like thousands of rolls, it seems like, just come flying out of this truck. If that was March 2020, we would all be singing a different thing. Also, yeah. did anyone else, as you're watching the the price of gasoline, just go up and up and up? This guy was getting like 14 gallons for like $5. I was like, I fucking hate this. Yeah, it's best not to think about <laughs> There's also the baseball scene. I mean, Please. that's my favorite part yes. of the movie by far. There's just this uh, this coach that goes, he's, he, the team uh, wins, so he's like, all right, I'm buying everybody sodas. Walks over to this machine. Uh, it eats his money until it starts 
like it's like it's a weird soda machine too it's got like two like cannons in it <laughs> like how it disperses the i've never seen a soda machine like this but it starts firing out these cans like at high velocity first one just clocks him right in the nuts and then he just kind of like a you know, hunch is over the next one catches him right in the dome and like the special effects when the kid crawls to him to see if he's okay like this makeup this prosthetic makeup of like the impact of the can crushing his skull is really, really good. Out of like, as, and of course, as this is want for this movie, ACDC is blaring, and all of a sudden, from behind like a big, like the scoreboard, this uh, giant steamroller bursts through, well, and it blows down a kid. <laughs> and like this is the, this is the first of two movies in a row we're going to cover where kids are killed in a movie, and it's pretty hysterical in both, honestly. <laughs> And the kid just kind of lets it happen. <laughs> well, I was confused for a second because they're riding their bikes. It's like, oh, bikes, they're mechanical. Like, okay, so things with batteries. But no, the bike just stops. I don't know. Like, all of a sudden, just, like, flips over. Yeah, I don't know if that was user error. Yeah, but just him. Yeah, because then the other kid's riding a bike for the whole rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, same thing with the cars, right? Like, it just, I suppose the comet just picked and chose chose <laughs> which things it wanted to uh uh animate i guess or the aliens did or the aliens um that baseball scene's um just fantastic and the kid and we learned that this kid is pretty resourceful and mm -hmm. pretty brave like he puts on the catcher's mask which like deflects the soda and he crawls like i think this kid probably gets the most characterization out of any goddamn person in this movie and like you actually kind of feel for him like his or and then there's like gee my jesus i'll kill you like so this kid goes through some pretty horrifying stuff. He does all to learn that his dad is dead. His dad. This is for my dad. <laughs> his dad who worked as a mechanic at the like the the rest stop just gets completely mowed over by a truck. Um, after that already great too. That guy gets yeah, wrecked. Yeah, sad. Um, well, plenty of things to love about this movie, plenty of things to hate. Uh, I shared some of my favorite parts. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to mention? Uh, it's something we alluded to earlier, but yeah, he, he the kid after leaving this uh, baseball, baseball game just is riding his bike without problem, uh, as we just covered, but it's just riding around on this like tour of carnage through suburbia, all these people that are just dead and felled by different machines. It's a, it's a really great, uh, really great scene. This kid, though, really takes it in stride. He's just kind of like, oh, another dead one. All right, better keep going. Ooh, that looks rough. Anyway, <laughs> really, like he doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really have a lot of gravity to his uh, his responses to that, which is fine. It's campier that way, but I don't know. It's it's weird stuff. And well, and as he rides by his teammates, there's two kids dead from the yeah, soda machine. Just, kids get wrecked by soda And kids. he sees his friend get run over. So within... You know, he wins the baseball game, and then within three minutes, the coach is dead, three of his friends are dead, and he just, like, you know, he's got to survive. And he also gets, perhaps, one of the scariest scenes of the whole movie, if we're really talking about things that are unsettling. So when he is doing that tour of suburbia, he goes, I guess, to his house or to, to somewhere uh, that he's familiar with. The ice cream truck, the mighty tasty, is just like driving around the the neighborhood with its song out, looking for people to kill, and he has to hide in a shrub. That that is actually kind of like really ominous and terrifying. 
Yeah, making like a pleasant melody and an association with a pleasant thing, you know, ice cream, menacing. Kudos to this movie for doing that. Yeah. It's like the only kind of scary part. Um, well, I picked this movie because I love it. And it has a special place in my heart because of my dad. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, um, you know, he and I have a handful of movies that we watched together over and over when I was younger. Uh, over the Top was one of them. A potential other pick that might be coming on the line soon. We've covered um, that. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Uh, like, I mean... Over the top, comma, and another potential upcoming. Oh, pick. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, okay. Oh, I, yeah, that's right. I think you, I do know think, this. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. You know. Um, this movie is a Hunter favorite. Um, the Hunter clan are like big horror movie people. It's like a tradition to uh, when the kids are like way too young to show them their first horror movie. I think it was like. I was super young when I saw John Carpenter's vampires and was like terrified since. Uh, but I think that's like created a very like interesting person. Um, this movie really resonated with my dad because as we've mentioned before on the pod, he was a truck driver. So anything that has something to deal with an 18 wheeler is going to be right up his alley. And I loved it just because it reminded me of my dad. So um, I am so excited. I finally had the chance to bring this movie to the two of you to the podcast and everybody who's listening. And I hope I did it some justice, dad, if you're listening. Um, anything else about Maximum Overdrive we want to say before we wrap up? I have two quick things that I wanted to bring up at the end. So I looked up all of Stephen King's box office history, because I was curious, or Stephen King movies. Maximum Overdrive is 39th of all time, lifetime gross. It's only ahead of three other movies, the other films that's ahead are almost all re-releases except for two, The Night Flyer and Riding the Bullet. So it is truly the bottom of the barrel of Stephen King, Grocers, which I think is just interesting. And then also this movie reminded me of a film we covered probably two years, three years ago, uh, Night of the Comet, mm. which is also uh, another movie where Comet's coming, everyone, you know, in that movie, everybody's like, wow, look at this Comet, let's go celebrate. And then almost everybody on the planet dies, seemingly. Um, and so I just thought it was interesting. Just watching Max Miller's like, oh, like triggered memories um, of Night of the Comet, which was a Tory pick for a while ago. Yeah, I guess uh, as I've as suggested at the onset, great sandwich movie. Uh, I think we've, we've covered some of the great stuff at the beginning of the end. Uh, earlier, we covered some of the stuff in the middle that drags a little bit. But on the whole, I mean, I, I'd say it's absolutely worth seeing because when it is at its best, it's... Very fun, very campy, very violent, and very, uh, I don't know, just very enjoyable. Uh, when it's at its worst, you, yeah, you, you might be able to go for like a, a smoke or just a sandwich or whatever. But um, on the whole, it's, it's worth seeing for its highlights. So I would say that it's uh, it's definitely one that I'm happy we've covered. Yeah, I'm happy that I now can say that I've seen Maximum Overdrive. Uh, and I think this is the third Stephen King movie we've covered in four years. Just trying to remember, we did. I did Misery a little bit ago. I think we did another one, maybe. I mean, this is only our second. But I'm interested, yeah, Stephen King, just, you know, many movies based off of his properties. So also just interesting to look at this as a Stephen King and one that he had a very heavy hand in making. Also, the other movie I'm just remembering now, uh, which is uh, similar to this movie, but uh, depend, uh, do, oh, it depends who you ask. Uh, I think maybe a little bit better is Christine, which we've covered before. Yes, Christine, of course. 
spelled differently than our Christine, who again is away, but uh, hopefully we'll be hearing from soon. All right. Well, folks, that was Maximum Overdrive. If you if you watch it, let us know. I think all you fuck faces would enjoy it. Um, anyway, have a great whatever. See you later, folks. Honk. <laughs>